This sermon by Dr. Joseph A. Piper is entitled The Glory of Grace, taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 through 31. This time I'd like to invite Dr. Piper to come and bring to us God's word this evening. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, I want to thank the elders for the privilege of of being with you this weekend. I have been greatly refreshed in your company. It's good to uh, see old friends and to uh, make new friends as I'm here. just want to commend you in this congregation, but I would include as well the Tulsa congregation, that when we have a weekend like this, um, the greater spiritual blessings come because of the ministry that you've been under regularly. If I went into a place where there was not the kind of ministry there is here or in Tulsa, there would not be the same uh, effect at all. And so there's simply a continuity. uh, And whatever greater blessings would come, they come because of your prayers, uh, prayers of others, and that continuity uh, in uh, our gospel ministry. And so I, I commend your pastors to you as well. Let us stand for the reading of God's Word from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 31. Now I exhort you, brethren, uh, I guess I'll read from the New King James, I'm sorry. We have all kinds of false starts tonight. You started reading uh, there in Jeremiah, and I said, boy, that's a big difference from the New American Standard. (laughs) I've done that often myself, so... Uh, Verse 10, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says... I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see, you're calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 
thus far God's holy word, and let us pray. We thank you, holy triune God, that you who are holy has given us the word that is holy, true, and perfect. We ask now that the Spirit who inspired these words would illumine our understanding, and moreover, he would grant they be preached in the demonstration of his holy power. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I want you boys and girls to imagine that there's something you really would like to have. Maybe it's a, a dollhouse or a, a new bicycle or a gun, something like that. And it's pretty expensive. And so you go to your father and you say, Dad, I really would, would like to get this. What do you think? And Dad says, you know, I, I think it'd be okay if you had that. But uh, I tell you what, you save up your money and I'll let you buy it. Well, at least you had his permission. Uh, and that would give you some motivation to work and to save. But he stops thinking, starts thinking about that. He says, he comes back, he says, I tell you what, if you save half, then I will give you half. That kind of matching grant approach. And well, that's a lot better because you would get it twice as fast. But then when your grandfather heard you wanted this thing, it'd simply be in your room the next week. And he gave it to you as a gift. Now, of course, gifts are the best way to receive things. Now, really, that's actually how any of us get anything, isn't it? We will save and do it ourselves, or buy it on credit and do it ourselves. Uh, We might have some help from someone else, but we also get things by gifts. Now, the analogy is that these are exactly the the three ways that throughout church history, since the time of Christ, uh, people have said that we can receive eternal life. Um, The British monk Pelagius uh, developed what we call Pelagianism. And he said, you do it all yourself, that uh, we're not bad, we simply work, and God will forgive us along the way, but uh, when our good works are sufficient, we will get eternal life. That's still the doctrine of of liberalism uh, and cults today. Uh, And of course, if you've got any consciousness of sin, uh, you you recognize the the poverty and, and the fertility of trying to do that. Well, Pelagius... Doctrines were rejected by the church, and, and then there developed a semi-Pelagianism, and that's the, the matching grant approach to salvation. And that is, uh, you do your part, and God will do his part. And God's part might even be greater than your part, but you still have to contribute. Now, it was opposition to that. That's what the Reformation was all about, wasn't it? That no, there, there's no good found in me. There's nothing I can do to contribute Uh, to my standing with God. And we sought to establish that Friday night in the conference as we thought about justification uh, received by faith alone. No, the only answer, the biblical answer, the answer of uh, the Reformers, the answer of uh, biblical Protestantism is that uh, from beginning to end, salvation is of God's grace. It is a free gift of God. And it's in that that we rest and and rejoice and exult. And you understand that doctrine. A few years ago, you had a conference on sola gratia, by grace alone. And it's it's a watchword with us as it was uh, coming out of the Reformation. But I wonder if, at times, if we've thought deeply enough and seriously enough about the reality, the radical nature of what we confess when we say, that salvation is by grace alone. That's where I want to take you tonight. In part, to help you get a better grasp of it, thrill in it, but also in part because there's so much pressure on us today. Yes, even in uh, our Orthodox Presbyterian churches, even as we heard about some attempts at one of the churches out west to make the gospel a bit more relevant. And there'll be constant pressure on you elders from perhaps even some of you. Constant pressure in the congregation. Loosen up a bit. Uh, Let's uh, look at how these other churches, they're big and they're growing. And, And you see, if you understand the radical nature 
of salvation by grace alone. You understand we have a radical message, a world-changing message that's premised upon this reality that salvation is by grace alone. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31 to look at, at the glory, the greatness, the radical nature of God's grace. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian congregation to deal with a number of issues that have been brought to his attention. Uh, there were uh, moral issues. He addresses, for example, in um, uh, chapters 5 and 6, there's um, theological issues or ethical issues with respect to marriage and uh, Christian liberty. Obviously, the, the big doctrinal issue with respect to uh, the resurrection. But he begins, and it's interesting, he spends the most time in this book um, the first you know, three and a half chapters dealing with this issue of uh, cliques in the church. Nothing new, is there? And so he's been informed that there were four cliques in the church at Corinth, and they all identified behind their significant leader. And so one group claimed to be of Paul. And of course, Apollos uh, the most eloquent one there, uh, there were those identified with Apollos, and they were the Apollos group. And then, of course, the chief apostle, uh, there was the, the Cephas, Peter group. And then, uh, of course, the most righteous would have been the Jesus group. Now, each group identified with a specific leader and considered themselves superior to the others in the congregation. Now, stop for a moment. From where do those feelings arise? Pride. Pride's always been at the root of the problems in our church. Individual pride, group pride, uh, considering ourselves uh, more important than others uh, in the congregation. And so what Paul does in these first four chapters is address this issue of pride. He wants to destroy the issue of pride. In doing that, he will destroy the cliques that are in the church. And as he works through chapter 1, he deals with um, that, uh, you know, Paul or none of the others except Christ were crucified for their sins. They weren't baptized into Paul. They were baptized into union with Christ. He talks about the, the power of the gospel to save. He talks about the power of preaching and God's method, which was a world pride-destroying method. God didn't save by the power or the wisdom of the world. God saved through the the message of the cross through the foolishness of preaching. He'll develop preaching uh, in chapter 2. He'll go on to deal with the, the spiritual problems that are going on there in the church. But um, in the end of chapter 1, he addresses the nature of God's sovereignty in our salvation. And he reminds us in those verses right before our text of the sovereignty of God in election uh, and that uh, they have no reason to uh, take pride in themselves because there were not many wise, mighty, noble uh, called. You know, God called the, uh, the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to put to shame the, the mighty, the base things. All that by election, he reaches the conclusion, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And that brings him now to this uh, profound development, so brief and yet profound, of the nature of grace. And what Paul does here is show us that um, from beginning to end, God's salvation is by sovereign grace. In order to humble us, Paul, the Holy Spirit in the Bible teaches us that from beginning to end, salvation is by God's grace. And I want to consider three things with you, that the uh, sovereign grace of God is the source of salvation, the sovereign grace of God has secured all the benefits of salvation. And the sovereign grace of God teaches you how to respond to salvation. Our first point, the sovereign grace of God as a source of salvation, is in the first half of, of verse 30. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. Now, there are many ways the Bible talks about what it means to be a Christian. But Paul's favorite way is used right here. And it's a prepositional phrase. In Christ Jesus. Union with Christ. Uh, and he sets this 
relationship to Christ to us by these two great names that we considered uh, over the weekend. He's Jesus, God incarnate, the God-man, Emmanuel with us, who as uh, the one person with the two natures is both the, um, uh, the sufficient and suitable mediator for God's people. And then he is the Christ, the one who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit, set apart both in his uh, earthly ministry of humiliation and in now his exalted ministry uh, as prophet, priest, and king. Thus, in him, by him, is everything that we need for our salvation. And thus, to be a Christian is to have this special relationship uh, to Christ Jesus that we define as union. We're in Him. We are in union with Christ Jesus. Now, I want to break that union down under two C's. We're in Him by um, covenant, and we're in Him by conversion. So we're in Christ by covenant. When, When Paul writes that we are in Christ Jesus, he has in mind the foundation of this relationship that as we all died in Adam, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Romans 5, we all now are made alive in Christ Jesus. When Christ Jesus came to earth as the second Adam, all those for whom he acted as the covenant head, we acted in him. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that because we've been baptized into him, we've been baptized into his life, into his death, his burial, his resurrection. You know the old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? If you're a Christian, yes, you were. You were there in him. You died with him. You were buried with him. You were raised with him. You've been exalted with him because he is your covenant head. As surely as you died in Adam, as surely as you're born with the guilt of Adam and the corruption of your nature, you were in Christ as your covenant head. But that happened a long time ago. My second C, you are in Christ by conversion. So Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Uh, All things have become new. And that newness is, that we have been joined to Christ subjectively. That there's a vital union. So he uses the illustration in in John chapter 5 of of a vine and a branch, uh, or a tree. And as the the branch is is in the tree or the vine, it gets its life from there. It has leaves, it bears fruit, because the vitality of, of of the the vine or the trunk is, is flowing into it. And we also are in Christ in this way. Subjectively, by His Spirit, Christ personally indwells every single one of us. We are in union with Him. Now, the, the two concepts, concepts themselves are glorious, aren't they? We can just stop right there and, and, and meditate that uh, Christ is my covenant head. I'm in Him. I acted in Him. Uh, Christ is the is the living reality of my life. I'm in Him. All my spiritual life comes from Him. But we have to answer the question, and that is how? How do we get to be in Christ as a covenant head? Because you weren't there in eternity, were you? When He was appointed the covenant head for His people. So how did you get to be in Christ as covenant head? Well, the very first couple little words of the text answer that for us when Paul writes, but of him. Now, who's the him here? Well, remember a very important principle as you read the Bible. When one or another of the members of the Godhead are mentioned, then the him or the word God is going to refer to God the Father. So him here is God the Father, of Him, of His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So how 
How are you in covenant with Christ? Well, Paul answers that question for us in Ephesians chapter 1. And it's in this grand reality of election that he's touched on here in verses 26 to 29. But in Ephesians 1, blessed be the Lord, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You notice these ends. <laughs> Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Christ became your covenant head when in eternity God chose you and gave you to him and him to you as your covenant head. He loved you in Christ Jesus. He could never love you apart from Christ Jesus because of your filth and and your sin. But he loved us in Christ Jesus, and he chose us to be his own unto redemption, unto adoption, unto the praise of his glory. Thus, when the Savior came, he came for us. Just as the high priest bore the names of the church on his shoulders and across his heart, uh, our Savior came as our covenant head, consciously, in his divine person, nature, acting on our behalf. So that when he died, we died. When he obeyed, we obeyed. When he was crucified, we were crucified. When he was raised, we were raised. We are exalted now with him in heaven. You got that? By election. That's Sovereign grace, the source of your salvation. You see it, right? Of him, you're in Christ Jesus. For some of you, this might be a a new truth. And yet, it's clearly here in Scripture, isn't it? But of him, of God's doing, you're in Christ Jesus. What about the second C, conversion? All right, Christ did all that for you when he was on earth acted as your covenant head. But how personally then do you enter into this union with him? That's also of God's doing. That's what Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus when he said, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again because you have a fleshly nature. You are sinful. You must be born again by the Holy Spirit. And earlier in John chapter 1, um, the apostle fleshes that out for us as well in language very similar to our text. So John has pointed out the fact, verses 9, 10, and 11, that they came into the world made by him that didn't receive him. He came unto the, the very church um, that was supposed to worship him, and they did not receive him. Then he gives this promise in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born, and we're back, John 3, born, born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, what are those last words, but of God. Now, there's three negatives here, and they're very important for us to grasp. And the first is, um, this conversion, this new life, is not a consequence of any physical relationship. Again, boys and girls, uh, try to listen to me. It is a great privilege that you have to be born in a Christian family, to be a baptized member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it brings many unique privileges and blessings for you. But just because you have Christian parents and Christian grandparents in no way means that you're going to become a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian, in other words. No, you do not inherit uh, this spiritual life by blood. Second, he says it's not of the will of the flesh. And here he's getting to this whole matter that we often hear referred to as uh, free will. Uh, um, will of the flesh is by the uh, independent, autonomous will of a sinful person. There's no such thing as free will in that sense, because by nature we all hate God, and the will only chooses according to the nature. I'll make it quite simple. Does God have a freedom will? 
Of course he does. He's God. Can God sin? No, of course not. Why? Because he has a holy nature, a perfect, infinite, eternal, unchangeable holy nature. And uh, people that say that a sinner can choose uh, God on their own terms uh, are saying they're more powerful than God is. No, it's not of this myth of free will. And then uh, the third negative is that it is not uh, of the will of man. There are many modern schemes of evangelism. Uh, some talk right down the road in Dallas, Texas, that uh, says as long as you can get a person to make a decision, they're saved. You can manipulate them into heaven. But no, he says it's not of the will of man. It's impossible. And then the very simple but of God. If you're going to be in Christ by conversion, you must be born again by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And in that, by faith, you take hold of Christ. So two things occur. You're born again. And as our catechism says, in the effectual call, you're brought into union with Christ through faith. So the Spirit enters you. You take hold of Christ um, in that spiritual relationship. And you then have the Spirit of the living Christ indwelling you by the sovereign grace of God. You need to understand this. The source of your salvation, your covenant relationship, your conversion is because of the sovereign grace of God. You see what I mean by the radical nature of grace? The glorious message that is ours, that God is the one who is saving sinners, for by grace are you saved through faith, that none of yourselves, and we talked about that Friday night, the very faith you exercise, this didn't originate with you. It itself is a gift of God. God is the one that saves sinners. And that's why we can be so emboldened to go about our evangelism. Recently, we go door to door once a month at Antioch, and I missed that Saturday. I was out of town, but a little subdivision, about 75 houses, the Bible Belt, there was a, a, a Mormon bishop and two Hindu families. Now you're thinking, well, they're beyond the scope of salvation. If you think that way, then you are denying the power of salvation in God. There is nobody that breathes in this life that can be on the power of God to save them if it is his will. And that is a great encouragement to us as small and often struggling Reformed churches. But I also would like to speak to you just about how the gospel relates to the grace of God as a source of your salvation, because perhaps there's some people here tonight who are not converted. And you have been listening pretty well, though, and, and you say, well, now, Piper, if I understand you correctly, you're telling me that if God has not chosen me and God does not work in my heart, I can't be saved. Is that what you heard? You heard me correctly. You need to understand that completely. But what's going to be your response? Well, oftentimes the response is, we'll say, la vie, la vie, what will be, will be. And, you know, if God has chosen me, I'll be saved. If not, you go and live your own way. That's blasphemous, you see. If you really understand your lost condition, that you're under God's wrath and condemnation and headed straight to hell. And I tell you, you cannot be saved if God does not show you mercy that really should cause you to fall flat on your face before him and beg for mercy. As I said the other day in the question and answer period, yeah, it's a mystery. But it's not for us to try to figure out the mystery. What did Jesus do with the Syrophoenician woman? He preached election to her. Did she, okay, I guess I'll just go home and if you'd save my baby, you'll save her. No, she argued, she pled. And Christ spoke of her great faith. That great faith was a gift of the Holy Spirit. You dare not sit here tonight and, and say, well, if God saved me, he'll save me. No, if you understand me, and only by God's grace can you be saved, then listen to me. Fall on your face before God. Humble yourself before God. Own your sin before God and ask him to have mercy. Now, if you go through the door, you'll realize that that's what he was doing.
but you don't sit back and try to figure that out. Your response is to call on God for mercy because he alone is the source of salvation in his sovereign grace. But it gets better. Not only is God the source of our salvation, his sovereign grace, sovereign grace has secured for us all the benefits of salvation. Look at the second half of the text. So, of his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who, Christ Jesus, became for us four things. Wisdom from God. The Greek we translate this, or we translate it both righteousness and sanctification and redemption. These four things address every one of us, our four greatest needs. Perhaps some of you children have learned the children's catechism. I love the section in there when it talks about Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Why do you need Christ as prophet? Because I'm ignorant. Why do you need Christ as a priest? Because I'm a guilty sinner. Why do you need Christ as king? Because I'm weak and helpless. And you see, it's wisdom. It's righteousness. It's sanctification. It's redemption that now is brought to us by this great Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. All of these things belong to you tonight if you are in Christ Jesus. He's become for us wisdom from God. That begins as the Holy Spirit begins to illumine our understanding. We hear uh, who God is. We learn of our sin and condemnation. We learn what Christ has done for us. We hear the promise. And then in that process, the Spirit of Christ regenerates us and gives us new eyes to see. We become wise uh, in understanding that it's in Christ that we can be saved if we'll but repent from our sins. And in our new hearts, that wisdom then um, enables us by the Spirit to exercise faith in Christ Jesus. But now, because Christ, who's exalted in heaven, is in union with us by the Spirit of Christ, um, the Spirit is at work in us, building on that foundation making us wiser and wiser and wiser. And remember, wisdom is not just knowledge. It's knowing what to do with that knowledge, how, how you fear God, how you live in light of that knowledge. And what the Spirit does is He takes the Scriptures and He illumines them to your understanding as you study them, particularly under the preaching of the Word. And then in His sovereignty, He often matches these truths that you're learning with with uh, events and circumstances he he orchestrates in your life. And and so your experience is reflective, uh, amplified by what you're learning, and you learn how to respond in that experience. And so the more you grow in Scripture and the more you walk in the Spirit, the wiser you become. When you read the Bible, you have your own tutor. When we were in California... My children's mother and father were not scientists nor born of scientists. Um, But we had a seminary student who had been a chemistry major, I think. And um, so we made a deal, and he was from the South. And so my wife would cook for him, Southern cooking, and he would tutor our children. Uh, And, you know, that was great. They had their tutor. You've got something better. You have the spirit of the triune God dwelling in you, teaching you from his word. And it's guaranteed that you will grow in knowledge and wisdom. It's important, again, particularly for teenagers to understand this and young people, because sometimes uh, you think you've got to go and make all the mistakes that we made. There's no excuse for that. You should grow up holier than we because you're in Christ and the spirit of Christ is teaching you through us, through the church, through the word, you don't have to make all the stupid mistakes. You should be growing in wisdom. And then for those of us that are my age, or the dear brother here that's almost 100, we don't ever quit growing in wisdom. You understand that? Now, sometimes we get a certain age and we think, well, I've got it all now. <laughs> I don't need to learn anything else. 
You know, that's also preposterous. We'll continue to learn in heaven. And so the Spirit is in us, teaching us through the Word and through our experience. But that's because of union with Christ. Because the Spirit of Christ is applying to us Christ, who is the treasure chest of all wisdom. And the Spirit is working that through the Word. Now, the next two work together. Christ in us is both for righteousness and sanctification. I trust you hear what's behind those two terms. In the first one, Christ is in us for righteousness has to do with our justification, which we saw this weekend is being pardoned for our sins and constituted legally righteous in God's courtroom. So God says to us, you are not guilty. Because of union with Christ, God takes that imputation that application of Christ's perfect righteousness applies it to us, and God justifies us. And so Paul says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And that's only because Christ is in you, uh, through faith, that you have justification. But grammatically, it's very interesting how the Holy Spirit puts these two things together, both righteousness and sanctification. Sanctification has to do with our daily dying to sin and growing in conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only our justification makes us acceptable to God. Uh, It alone makes us acceptable to God. But if you are justified... That means the Spirit of Christ has regenerated you, is indwelling you, and thus from the inside out, what is he doing? He's sanctifying you. And that's why there's no tension when the Bible says, pursue that sanctification without which no one can see the Lord. It is necessary for you to be growing in grace and God if you're going to go to heaven. It doesn't get you into heaven. Remember what we saw from the the confession, that justification is by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Why? Because the very faith regenerated by the Holy Spirit brings us into union with Christ. Christ is in you, working his life out. Sometimes when uh, children are young, they want to look like their mother or their father, and you know what you've done, kids? You've gotten in front of a mirror, and you've uh, tried to look like your parents, and maybe even painted a mustache or, or whatever, and did that make you like your parents? Didn't happen. And then as you begin to turn into those teenage years, you you walk in there and you look in the mirror. Ah! Because there's a mom or dad. But you didn't get what you want. Got the big ears, the funny nose. Why? Because you practiced? No, because their physical nature is in you and it's going to work itself out. Nature of Christ is in you. It cannot be restrained if you're in Christ. He is going to be shaping you from the inside out. It's very important as Reformed people we understand this because we sometimes tend to think that sanctification is is all on us. No, it's also by God's grace. The Spirit is the agent. Now, we do practice. We are to use the means, but those means do not sanctify us. He uses the means. And so he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for because the Spirit is in you, making you to will and do God's good pleasure. But that's why we may and must speak about the necessity of sanctification. If you have claimed to be a Christian for some period of time and and you and, and your spouse and others cannot see differences in you, if you have no desire for godliness, then that simply means you're unconverted. Sanctification won't save you, but it is the absolute infallible evidence that you've been saved. It must be there. It must be there. It's slow. Painfully slow at times, isn't it? But I trust, and, and, and recently the Lord has, has helped me so much that I can look back and, and I can see. My wife can see. I can see it in her. I can see the differences. Um, in fact, we've been very sanctifying for each other. 
51 years of marriage, we've really helped each other a lot. <laughs> uh, we can see it because it's God's grace. If you're in Christ, you're going to be growing in grace. Your spiritual appetite is going to be increasing. Those, remember what I said this weekend, there's no excuse for any sin. You can't say that's who I am, that's how God made me or whatever. Christ is in you for sanctification. Ah, it makes you tired though, doesn't it? You think about having to keep learning and having to get sanctified. And so we come to this last thing and he's in you for redemption. And redemption often refers to the work of Christ in redeeming us from our sin, paying the penalty. But it's at times used for glorification. And that's how Paul uses it here. Christ is in you by a spirit. The spirit's the down payment, the seal, the guarantor that you're going to heaven. And you're going to be just like him in moral perfection. This is the promise of glorification. And the spirit of Christ in you is the one who's working it, the one who preserves you so it cannot be lost, the one who will take your soul safely to heaven uh, when you die and your body remains in union with Christ, wherever it is it is about. And then when Christ returns, those who are dead will be raised, those who are alive raised up and transformed into some facsimile of the beauty and glory of the human nature of the Savior. And it can't fail. You do get tired. You hurt, you have pain, you have uh, all kinds of lapses, but spiritually you have been wrestling with sin. You are well aware of the struggles that we all have and, and you grow weary, you grow weary with the sense of the world and and persecution and the failures of the church, but here is the hope of glory. Christ in you, Paul says, why? The hope of glory. You see why I say it gets even better? Not only is the sovereign grace of God the source of your salvation, it has secured all the benefits of salvation from beginning to end, so you live now safely and you go securely to heaven. Evermore. Evermore. This brings us then to uh, Paul's punchline, so to speak, and that is because the grace of God is the source of your salvation, the sovereign grace of God secure all the benefits of salvation, the sovereign grace of God teaches you then how to respond to salvation. Notice that verse 31 is a purpose statement in the New American Standard, uh, in the New King James. It says that, and in the um, uh, New American Standard, um, it uh, says uh, so that, and he quotes Jeremiah chapter 9, that's why we had that as our other reading tonight, verses 23 and 24, um, and there uh, it says that, uh, that we may not glory, and the better word is boast in ourselves, but rather we glory or boast in God. You see, that's what sovereign grace does. That's why Paul has brought us to this point as he's dealing with pride. You know, God hates pride. We saw that as we looked through uh, James chapter 4. It says that God abominates pride. Matthew Henry, remember, said that pride is the mother of all sin. Pride is a refusal to come to God on his terms, refusal to uh, turn uh, away uh, from sin. A, a refusal not to accept God's providential circumstances in your life. God hates pride. And God is going to destroy pride with this doctrine of sovereign grace. If you understand it, remember what I said over the weekend, that country, maybe it wasn't here, that country song, Why Me, Lord? You probably should say that every day in your prayers. Why me, Lord? Many of you, like me, have, have a brother who's unconverted. Uh, and at a point, um, he was no more wicked than I was as a teenager. Why did God save me? Because I would make a preacher, get to pastor a church, or help shape a seminary. No. It's all sovereign grace. Not a thing in me. Not a thing in me. And that's where God brings us with this doctrine. Paul will go on and as he 
wraps this up in chapter 4, gets close to wrapping up. He says in verse 7 of chapter 4, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We're to consider others more highly than ourselves. We're to humble ourselves under the hand of God. And it's this truth. And this is why, and if some of you are not wrestling with this doctrine of election, you know the primary reason you don't like this doctrine? I mean, Scripture is pretty clear about it. It's pride. I remember the first time I was taught this doctrine. Now, where I was converted in the Presbyterian church, people don't get converted in Presbyterian churches, and I was converted in the Presbyterian church, and, man, they made a big deal out of me. They said, I had done something. So when I was first exposed to the doctrine of election, I wasn't that dumb, and I realized that this is true. I didn't do any favors for God. I didn't like the doctrine. That's what it does, you see. And our pride will push back against it. But that's exactly what God wants to do with it. He wants to humble you. Every day, drive the knife of sovereign grace into the heart of pride that you'll be humble before him. If you're humble before him, you'll be humble before one another. But there is a place for boasting. So Jeremiah goes on, and that's the part that, uh, uh, to which Paul then refers, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What, what else could you do? If this whole doctrine is designed to lift up God and exalt Him, you did nothing. You contributed nothing. You still contribute nothing. From beginning to end, your salvation is of God's grace. There's only one place to boast. My wife likes to say that when she began to learn uh, the doctrines of grace, Santa Claus died and God became greater. It's true, isn't it? You know, we, we, we want to keep God in a box. And this doctrine blows the box wide open. Our God is great, glorious, sovereign, powerful. In, uh, I think it's in Psalm 33, where we have the call to worship. He is in heaven and he does as he pleases. Psalm 115, the same thing. He's great. And you need to be overwhelmed with the sense of his greatness. How do you boast in God? Let me give you three practical ways then. That's what Christian obedience is all about. Not to earn favor. Yes, to say thank you, but to say thank you in the way he's appointed. And that's why our catechism begins that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, obedience is simply boasting in your Savior, doing that which pleases him. Second way you boast in God, that's what worship is. If you understand that worship is boasting in the greatness of God, then you don't need all these uh, meretricious and terrible uh, human inventions to make worship interesting. If worship is full of God, could it be more interesting? No. And so we come here to boast in Him. Worship's full of Him. And we sing of Him, and we pray to Him, we read of Him, we hear Him speak to us in His Word. Now, we'll be blessed through all of that, but it's boasting in God. And then perhaps the most practical thing for you tonight, because this is the thing we get most uptight about, and that is all witnessing is is boasting in God. Forget about having to learn this thing or that thing. It's good to learn things. It's good to have Scripture put together. But witnessing is simply boasting in God. Now, you don't get nervous about boasting anything else you like. You stand in the line in the grocery store and show a perfect stranger pictures of your grandchildren. Or you'll get into a conversation with somebody and you'll start talking about your favorite team or your favorite author or composer or whatever. And you don't worry, well, are they going to get uptight? No, because it means a lot to you. You leave the house, you've been in the presence of God, you've been filled with some sense of his beauty and glory, you've asked him for opportunities to speak of him to others, and you get out in the world. And of course, the headlines are full of everything we need to boast in God. People's lives are full of everything we need to boast in God. And we can just simply talk about God, what He's doing in our lives, what He can do in their lives. And it's contagious, you see. That's boasting in God. 
And that's how you're to respond to the sovereign grace of God, to be humbled and boast in God. So, the sovereign grace of God teaches us from beginning to end salvation is in the Lord. And we're humbled and we boast. Now you understand, I hope, even more fully what we mean by sola gratia, grace alone. Understand the radical nature of grace in your life, thus the radical nature of our message. Because we go to the world around us and they have no hope and they, they're desperate. And what we're saying is there's a God of hope because God saves sinners. God loves to save sinners. Now only God can save sinners. And so we're not intimidated. You don't be afraid of the mean atheist or the Hindu neighbor or, or the Mormon or whatever. Because people are only saved by sovereign grace. At the end of the day, uh, they're no worse than you were when God saved you. You just forget how awful our depravity is. Even covenant children, maybe you came to Christ even in infancy, even in the womb, but you understood at some point along the way, wow, what has God done in my life? Because you know you, you were conceived in sin. You would have been born dead in sins and trespasses except for the grace of God. That is the grace that is operative today in our evangelism and in our preaching. So, don't be downcast. Lift your heads up. Walk under the banner of sola gratia. And as even small congregations live boldly in the reality that God doesn't need numbers and he doesn't need money to save sinners. God saves sinners by grace. He'll save sinners through you in your evangelism, in your preaching. Let's pray. We thank you, glorious triune God, for this uh, revelation of sovereign grace, which is the source of our salvation, has secured all the benefits of salvation that we might then respond to you we might grow in humility. We might esteem all others more highly than ourselves. We might learn to be content with our lot and that we'll boast in you, Lord. Oh, bless your saints, Lord, and these two congregations represented. Continue to work in them and through them and grant, Lord, that they will see people converted. For there's nothing more refreshing for the church than to see people converted. So we pray that you will, you will do that, Lord, for them and help all of us to live confidently and boldly under the banner of grace. For Christ's sake, amen.